We've been looking uh, the last few weeks at a sweeping section in 1 Corinthians from chapter 8 through chapter 10. And if you really wanted to put a title on the entire section on all three chapters combined, you might call it from gloating in knowledge to glorifying God. Because that is the journey that Paul wants to take these Corinthian believers on. That's the journey that you and I are on as we're going through this passage. It is the challenge that Paul's been confronting this group of people with who were smug in their knowledge, prideful in their doctrine, and it wasn't necessarily wrong. It hadn't led them to error, but it left them in, in arrogance. And what Paul really wants to do in their minds and in our minds, and is always a challenge for all of us, isn't necessarily correct what they have, but to raise their knowledge of God. And that's what churches are all about. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what your challenge always is. It is to raise your knowledge of God higher than where it is. You never reach a point where you could understand this infinite God in every way that he's to be understood. And yet understanding him is the key to everything in your life life. Understanding God is the key to everything in your life. So that's what Paul's doing. He's trying to elevate their knowledge of God. He's trying to help them to see how understanding God properly and understanding the gospel properly will transform them from this level of arrogance and smugness and pride to a life that really does glorify Him, because the implication is the mere knowledge doesn't. Having the knowledge is not enough. It doesn't necessarily bring glory to God. As a matter of fact, it may actually detract. This is what He told them in chapter 8. They actually could do damage to other Christians. They could become a stumbling block. They could become a hindrance in people's pursuit of God and in doing that they do harm not only to those believers, but they do harm to God. The, one, the ones for whom Christ died. Now in contrast to all that in chapter 9, Paul outlined for them his own example, who instead of becoming a hindrance and a stumbling block to others, he, he says, made himself a slave. The gospel demanded of him that he enslave himself to the needs of others, to the weaknesses of others, to the preferences of others, that he enslave himself to their pursuit, to their maturity, and even to their, their conversion, if you will, so that he could win as many as possible to Christ. Now, this whole discussion, you remember, revolved around, in their cultural setting, uh, this dynamic of them eating in pagan temples. This is the backdrop, if you will, of everything that Paul's saying. And that makes it challenging for us because we don't have pagan temples down the street necessarily. We don't necessarily have a, a culture that is dominated by idolatry. And so the challenge for us as we go through this is to, first of all, uh, understand what's going on in that setting, to place ourselves there in that setting, and to know how we would measure up with the same kind of challenges. That's the challenge of biblical preaching. The challenge of biblical preaching 
isn't to somehow make, uh, take the Bible and to bring it up into our context. The challenge of biblical preaching is to take all of you and to place you back in that context so that you can hear what God has to say to those people and you can understand the way it applies to your life. So that's what we've been doing. We've been trying to understand this backdrop that Paul's setting all of this up against where he will eventually come down at the end of chapter 10 with, this, with these words, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's, that's really the culmination of all of this discussion about these pagan temples and all of the situations that they found themselves in because they were being drawn into compromising situations. They were being asked to go into these pagan temples, which were scattered all throughout Corinth. And they were being invited to ceremonies and to weddings and to birthdays and to awards and to graduations or whatever it might be that would be a social event. These were the social halls of the society. And they would go into these temples and they would go into these ceremonies being believers and yet surrounded by paganism, surrounded by idolatry, and they would be served food, and they would be served drinks, which had been dedicated, which had been consecrated to these pagan idols. And they ate, and they drank. And Paul wants to reorient their eating and drinking. He wants them to begin to think, how can you eat and drink to the glory of God? How can you live? How can you drive? How can you work? How can you be married? How can you be a father? How can you be a mother? How can you do whatever you do to the glory of God? That's what this is about. It's all about reorienting them. It's not even for Paul necessarily what they were eating as much as where they were eating it and who was around. This is the issue that serves as the backdrop. These Christians had convinced themselves that they could enter into that environment, that they could participate in all the activities that were going on without inwardly, in their mindset, endorsing the worldview that stood behind it. That's the way they thought. They could participate in whatever went on in their culture as long as they mentally didn't endorse what was behind it. Well, this is a problem on two levels. Paul addressed one of them already. First of all, there were some less mature believers who had, had not completely shed that old worldview. So for them to actually participate in those kinds of activities would have been, in their minds, worshiping some other god. They, they couldn't separate themselves from their old way of thinking. And so to go into that situation would have afflicted their conscience It would have made them feel like they were sinning. And so they would avoid these events altogether until they saw someone that they respected going to these temples and they might even be invited to go with them and they would be drawn into that situation and they would be led to do what violated their conscience and thereby leaving their conscience more weak for the next challenge when it faced a real temptation with sin. And Paul's telling them that's that's a problem. That's a serious problem if you lead someone to the place where you're teaching them by your example to ignore their conscience. You're causing them to stumble. There's a second problem, and it really it, it's what Paul deals with in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. After dealing with all of these uh, efforts to avoid 
causing others to stumble and enslaving himself to win others. Paul wants to sort of return back to the issue at hand, the issue of these pagan festivals, the issue that maybe these Corinthians thought that they knew enough to navigate through this, to return to the Corinthians and challenge them that this issue wasn't just about others, it was about them. That maybe, maybe, there's a possibility that they didn't know enough. The problem is not that they were too mature, too understanding. It wasn't they weren't mature enough. And we talked about this before. We talked about how in your Christian life, you will begin and there will be certain things that do not bother your conscience. And you will be comfortable with them. But God has designed us in a process where we grow and we grow and we grow. And as we understand Him more and our conscience becomes more and more informed, it is more and more afflicted by more and more things as we go along in the process. And that's what Paul's attempting to do for them. He's attempting to grow them even more in their knowledge of God. And so he appeals in verse 14 and 15 to their sense of understanding, their claim to be knowledgeable and discerning people. And he says to them, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The word is phronimos, people who use their head, people of their minds, people who use their minds. They're thinking people. They're well-taught people. And Paul says, if that's what you think you are, then consider what I'm about to tell you. If you really are people who are, who are knowledgeable of God or interested in growing in your knowledge of God, then he challenged them, them to be a little more deep, a little more profound in the way that they think about God maybe than they ever imagined. There may be a way of understanding God that had never entered their mind, a new level of maturity that they had never achieved. And Paul introduces it here. And what he introduces to them is a God who is jealous. He introduces to them the idea of God's jealousy. And really, the perils of those who might fall under it. You see, they had a little knowledge of God. Back in chapter 8, remember, they were, Paul was quoting from the Corinthians. And they were saying in verse 4 of chapter 8, Look, we all know there, an idol has no real existence. And we all know that there is no God but one. In other words, they had a handle on God's unity. They knew that there weren't really all these gods that are out there. But Paul's warning them. There's more to God than you realize. More to God than you may have ever thought. And one of the truths about him that they had never realized, they apparently had maybe ignored, was the issue of his jealousy. You remember God brought the Jews out of Egypt, out of their bondage. He brought them out of their slavery, took them out into the desert. And out in the desert, he establishes a covenant with them. And in that covenant, he begins to teach them about himself. And one of the primary ways he taught them about himself was through the Ten Commandments. And it was really all about his distinctiveness. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And that is restated a number of different ways throughout the entire Pentateuch. You know, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You will have no other gods before me. 
And so they, they grasped that. The Corinthians believed that. They had that one down. But the second thing he taught them in the second commandment was about his jealousy. This is what he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. This is the second thing he's teaching them about himself. And this is what Paul is suggesting they need to grow in here in 1 Corinthians 10. And you can see it down in verse 22. This is where he goes in this section. After everything he has to say to them, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's what this is about. He says that after giving them example after example after example in the first 13 verses of this chapter, how the Jews in that time of their wandering in the wilderness provoked the Lord's jealousy over and over again, how they suffered because of it under his anger, how because of their idolatry and their evil desire and their doubting and their grumbling and all of these things, how they were constantly provoking the Lord. Provoking at the core of it his jealousy. And Paul says in verse 6, all these things were intended to serve as examples to us, to teach us something about ourselves and something about God. See, we think of God, even during this time of year when everyone is so, you know, sort of bubbly and glowy, we kind of think about God in all those ways that are attractive to ourselves. And so we like to think about God as loving, and we like to think about God as kind, and we like to think about God as forgiving. We like to think about God even as powerful, and sometimes we think of Him as a deliverer or a provider or a protector or someone under whom we can place ourselves for His care. We think about God in all those ways, but when God first brought the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, one of the first things He taught them about Himself was that He is jealous. A little later in the book of Exodus, the Lord reiterates it to Moses when he says in Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Repetition for emphasis. I don't know when the last time you prayed to God in such a fashion. Oh, God, who is jealous. And you lift up your prayer. God, by calling his name jealous, was in essence saying, look, if you want to understand me, you need to understand this about me. We naturally recoil at that concept of jealousy. It has such bad connotations in our culture because we often think of jealousy as that sort of human reaction within a relationship that is normally filled with pride. And therefore... Jealousy often manifests itself as that unreasonable demand to be the center of all of someone's activity and all of their conversation and even all of their thoughts, often making demands that go beyond anything that is reasonable and demands that go even beyond what your spouse or some other person has ever committed themselves to. It's a consuming pride, a self-centered attitude. 
It's not an attitude set on serving others, but instead an attitude that demands to be served. It's not one that, uh, that, that is focused on the joys and delights of the other person, but rather the satisfaction of yourself. But there's a different kind of response and emotion that we might call jealousy as well. It's a zeal to protect the unique bonds and affections within marriage. It's a holy and healthy reaction, a holy and healthy emotion. It's everything God would desire within marriage. In fact, we would think it bizarre and lacking if a married person could see within their own home someone come in through the doors and express marital affection to their spouse and not feel anything. We would say that there's something distorted about that, something bizarre, something strange, and something awry. In other words, we understand that there is a certain kind of jealousy that is sanctioned and that is holy and that is honorable and that is a godly response. In fact, in the Old Testament, this kind of jealousy is often the way that God presents himself. He often presents himself in relationship to his people as a faithful husband. He even endorses that kind of jealousy within marital relationships. Did you know there's a sacrifice prescribed in the book of Numbers chapter 5 that was known as the jealousy offering? That is to say that if you were jealous in some way and suspicious of your spouse, there was a procedure prescribed in the law of God where you could investigate that and find satisfaction for your own heart and mind. God understood that this is legitimate. He understood that this is right within marriage. This kind of jealousy is looked at as appropriate and right with any kind of loving relationship that is based on promises and covenants. It's in accordance with God's designs for blessing and honor. And so it's appropriate to have a sense of anger in order to protect protect that kind of relationship. This is the kind of jealousy that we talk about when we talk about God. And it's one that ought to be sobering in our minds. On one hand, it ought to strike us with fear. On the other hand, it ought to be encouraging to you. Because it gives the evidence of an intense love and commitment from God for you. When you begin to think about the jealousy of God and God being jealous about what you do with your time and your resources and your money and your food and everything else, when you begin to think about how God is jealous for how you use your heart and mind and life, you ought to immediately reflect on the fact that He loves you intensely. That kind of jealousy is only manifest in those kinds of relationships. It's a zeal of a holy affection, in other words. And honestly, we should hope for nothing less because anything less than a fervent and devoted love from God would be disturbing. Now, Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand that there's perils with this, with God's jealousy that we need to be aware of. We don't need to just understand the big picture that God is one God and God is all powerful and God is sovereign and God is all these other things. We need to understand this about God. We need to understand that he's jealous. 
And we need to understand the pitfalls that come with that and the ways to avoid it. Now, the, the way to avoid it is obvious within marriage, right? We know how to avoid jealousy. It's very simple. A single-minded, fervent love for one person. That's how you avoid jealousy. That's how you eradicate any kind of fear. I know in my own uh, marriage, my own life, I go out of my way to demonstrate to my wife and to remind her often that she is the only one in my heart. She's the only one in my life. I do that by transparency. I do that by vulnerability. I do that by affirmation verbally. I do that by all kinds of ways because I don't even want the hint of jealousy to ever arise in her heart. It's so easy. The, 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 the prescription on how to eradicate jealousy is so easy. Well, this is exactly, and not surprisingly, exactly where Paul wants to take us. He wants to take us to the point where God's love, zealous love for us, would elicit the kind of response for us that we are equally as zealous and single-minded in our devotion of Him. So that we reach the point where everything we do, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. That's the goal. That's how you eradicate any kind of pitfall of jealousy. But if you're not, Paul has a warning for you. If you don't, and your heart is divided, Paul says there are perils that come with the jealousy of God. Now with that in mind, Paul drives home this whole issue in these verses, returning to the idea hitting head on this eating and drinking in these temple ceremonies and, and causing others to stumble. And not only that, but causing the Lord to be stirred to anger in his jealousy. Let's just read these verses to hear what or the way that Paul presents his case in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul's urgent command here, his urgent warning is that they would flee idolatry. And he gives this warning about God's jealousy at the end building his case in a series of contrasts here, two dramatically opposite messages, two dramatically opposite meals. That's the test case for him. These are the test cases. These are the exhibits that Paul's talking about. One is singly devoted to the Lord and His glory. One is dismissive of, the, of God and His glory. One is intimately wrapped up with your involvement In the body of Christ, one is indicative of your compromise with the world. 
One is aligning yourself in love with the family of God. One is demonstrating your alignment with the foes of God. Two distinct forms of fellowship that frame for us this issue of God's jealousy for the Apostle Paul. He presents them, first of all, beginning with the communion that we have with the family of God. Our communion with the family of God. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, he says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here this word is obvious. The key word in this entire passage is participation. Or in some places it's translated sharing. Or in some places it's translated partnership. Or in other places fellowship. Or in some places it's translated communion. As a matter of fact, if you've ever heard the Lord's table described as communion table, this is where it comes from. It comes from this passage and the particular translation of this verse. People often speak about this event in a number of different ways, but this is probably one of the more popular, that table where we break the bread and share the cup together here once a month in other churches less often, in some churches more often, but it is something that we all do in obedience to the command of Christ. And Paul refers to it here as the cup of blessing that we bless and the bread that we break. Many people think that Paul's using this phrase, the cup of blessing, in sort of a formal sense of the Jewish Passover. There were a series of cups uh, that were passed around three, some people think maybe four cups that were passed around and served during the Passover meal for these ceremonial drinks, if you will. And the last of these was called the cup of blessing. And that's what many people think that Paul's referring to here because it is out of that final cup of the Passover meal that the Lord instituted this table, this celebration, and built a sort of a bridge, if you will, between the salvific work of God within Israel and the salvific work of God within the church. Two commemorative meals that he established to to, uh, enhance our worship of him and his redemptive work on our behalf. And Paul says that it's in this bread and in this cup that we share, that we participate, that we commune, that we fellowship with the blood and the body of Christ. Now, there's no end of the discussion of what exactly Paul means there. The Catholics have taught that when the priest stands up and pronounces his 33 or 34 blessings and his hocus pocus over the bread, it supernaturally is transformed from, that's not a, uh, just a joke, that's where the word hocus pocus comes from. That's part of the Latin phrase, I guess, that they, they use. But the, when they do this, this hocus pocus, uh, the, the bread supernaturally is transformed from wheat and wine into literal human flesh and blood. That supernatural transformation is called by the Catholic Church transubstantiation. Not only that, but they teach that by eating and drinking it, it confers or we might say provides grace to the participants at the table, something that is uh, accomplished over and above 
the work of Christ on the cross. It is in addition to what Christ did on the cross. This is why in most predominantly Catholic countries around the world, they still uh, celebrate a feast called Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. That's what that Latin phrase means. And they will literally take that wafer of bread. If it has not been completely consumed by everyone in the congregation, they will take that wafer and they will enshrine it. They will bow down to it. They will parade it through the streets of their towns and their villages and their cities in gold-plated sedan chairs hoisted on the shoulders of elaborately robed worshipers chanting and dancing before the wafer. Because to them, that wafer literally has become Christ. That is their Christ. That is the provision for the salvation of their souls. The grossest distortion of the meaning of these verses. That somehow there's some mystical thing that takes place. With this wafer and with this cup. Conveniently, the Catholics ignore the plain teaching of this, that the cup and the bread are supposed to be mutually and shared by all the body of Christ. They constantly withhold the cup. As a matter of course, only the priests drink it. Well, the reformers, they rightly rejected all this. They rejected these elements of transubstantiation that have more in common with magic than they do with the mandate of God. They still wanted to cling, however, to some of the mystical elements, some supernatural event that took place in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Luther himself invented something that came to be known as consubstantiation, not transubstantiation, in which he taught that while the bread and the cup didn't literally become the flesh and the blood of Christ, the flesh and the blood of Christ was in, with, around, and under the bread and the cup while they took it. No one really knows what Luther meant by that. I'm not sure Luther knew what he meant by that. Don't ask me. But he wanted to hold on to something magical, mystical that took place whenever this cup was partook of it was a mystical hangover from the middle ages the calvinists did a bit better in rejecting both the catholic idea of transubstantiation and the lutheran idea of consubstantiation they didn't make any claim to a literal body and blood of christ being in the elements of the lord's table but they held still on to this mystical hangover And the claim that by participating in the Lord's table, there was some experience of transferred grace. Sometimes they refer to it as the means of grace. Meaning that it supernaturally conveys or provides something that wasn't provided in the work of Christ on the cross. Some element of grace that would be there that wouldn't be there otherwise if you didn't participate in the ceremony. None of that, of course, is supported by Scripture. Nowhere. Not in the Gospels and not here. 
Paul's not talking about some mystical, supernatural event. What he's talking about is your identification. What he's talking about is your testimony. The word Paul uses here when he speaks about sharing or participation or communion or whatever it might be, the word that he uses is the Greek word koinonia. Very familiar to those of you who've studied Greek. It is the word that we often translate fellowship. Its most basic sense, in its most basic sense, it refers to a relationship in which two or more people share a joint interest. That's why Paul often uses it to refer to those very natural relationships that he has with churches along the way, whether it be Philippi or whether it be Rome, other church at Rome, or whether it be in other places. He uses this word to to describe the byproduct of their relationship whereby they participated with Paul in his work, often by giving financially to it. In other words, what he's telling them is there was a tangible demonstration of an already existing inner bond that was in our hearts. That's the koinonia. That's what koinonia is. It is the outward, tangible, visible demonstration of what already is preexisting. In your hearts. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. That's exactly what the cup and the bread are. Those those physical elements that we participate in. They don't do anything to you. It's not like you you come in a, a filthy sinner. And you take part of the cup and the bread. And you walk out cleansed because of it. No you're cleansed 100% completely by the work of Christ. If you're here today and you are a sinner. And you are wrapped up in captivity to some sin and it is destroying your life and your heart and you know it. You don't need some ritual. You don't need some cup. You don't need some ceremony. You don't need any of that. What you need is the cross of Christ. What you need is to accept the work of Christ on your behalf. He cleanses you. And that's all you ever need. That's his gift. Now we come and we participate in this table as a testimony to that. In fact, over in chapter 11, Paul says it this way. He says in verse 26 of chapter 11, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's what we're doing. We are testifying. We are proclaiming something. We are giving outward evidence to an internal reality and this is paul's point that he's making that he sort of hones in on in verse 17 because there's one bread and we who are many are one body we all partake of one bread you see paul's point here isn't something mystical takes place between us and the bread or something mystical takes place between us and the cup his point Here, the reason he's using the language of koinonia, of communion, is because of what takes place tangibly among believers. That's what he's talking about. Because we all come together and we all partake of this one bread and giving testimony to one another and to a watching world that we are unified by the same Savior. We all identify with Him. We all submit to Him. We all belong to Him. We all align ourselves under His Lordship. We all give Him our worship. We all are His body. That's what's taking place. 
There may be a thousand different loaves in a thousand different cups spread across a thousand different churches. But in our minds, it is the one body of Christ that we all belong to. And it's the one work of Christ that we all give testimony to. The unique blood of Christ, which completely satisfies all of God's wrath against your sin. Paul's point is that it demonstrates because of that. That we all share the same interests. We all share same mutual bonds of love. That we're all connected by concern for one another and love for the Lord. Jesus said would identify us to the world when they see that kind of love within us. Now that sets up the contrast as Paul shifts now from speaking about the unique communion of the family of God to talking now about the corruption with the foes of God. He tells them now in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now he's taking us out of the realm of the church and he's contrasting different kinds of meals. And the point is fairly simple that even outside of the communion table, those who eat sacrifices are participants. The same word there, koinonia. They are participants in the altar. That's not to say that every one of them walked up to the laver and flayed the animals and laid their carcasses on the burning coals of the altar. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament prescribed a, a, a situation where if you had an offering, you would bring it to the door of the temple and you would lay your hands on that sacrifice as a demonstration, as a testimony that you are endorsing, that you are identifying with that sacrifice. And then the priest would be the one who would turn around and take it up to the altar and sacrifice it there for you. There was, in other words, there was a public identification between you and the sacrifice. And then the scripture provides or, or prescribes in many of those cases, not all, but most, it prescribes that you would actually take a portion of that sacrifice, whether it's an animal or whether it's a grain or even if it's some wine or, or whatever, that you would actually take a portion of that and you would go and you would eat that. Now, this wasn't a community meal. This wasn't something that every pedestrian passerby was invited to come and participate together with you in it. And why is that? Because it demonstrated something. It identified something. It communicated that what was, what was killed or what was offered or what was sacrificed there on the altar was you. That you're the one who deserved to be up there. That you're the one who should have died because of your sins. That you're the one who provoked the anger of God and that God has provided some way for you to escape that wrath and you're going to sit there and you're going to not only make that sacrifice but then you're going to turn around and you're going to experience a gift from God and you're going to rejoice in his provision by feasting on that meal that's how you became a participant and that's Paul's point here not everyone came to that meal this was an exclusive event It was limited only to those 
who endorsed and benefited from that sacrifice. Now, Paul's very quick to clarify that what the Lord prescribed in the Old Testament is not the same as pagan sacrifices. He says in verse 19, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do, want, do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul's not affirming that the belief system of these pagan rituals was real. But he says there is another system that operates behind their belief system. And that system is under the control of demons. Now I know that we live in a world that imagines that demons are the fairy tales of a bygone era. The, the construction of an unsophisticated, backward, and ancient mindset. But the Bible teaches a very different perspective. The Bible teaches that demons are actively at work around you. And that they are carrying out their work and promoting their work through a number of means. The primary one that's demonstrated throughout the Scripture is through religion. Now you may think that a demons are something that's reserved just for the occult, just for some dark corner of some run-down house with some, uh, some strange ritual, but the scripture would tell you the exact opposite. Demons have their primary work through religion. As a matter of fact, scripture says that in our, our last days, the times as we await the return of Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, it is explicitly said, by the Spirit, that, that men will give themselves to doctrines of demons. In other words, demons are promoting a way of thinking, a way of seeing life, a way of approaching the world through doctrines within churches that take the name of Christ, and yet they are teaching what is demonic. And this is how Satan is accomplishing his work. This is how he is destroying people. This is how he is running down families. This is how he is undermining joy. This is how he's doing all these things. But not only that, the scripture also says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his ministers as servants of righteousness. Not just the doctrines, but there's some people who make themselves instruments. And even... Even before all of this work within the church, Satan was involved in deception by religion. In fact, the very verse that Paul is quoting right here is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. You may see it in your margins, but it recounts the time when Israel was in the wilderness. And it says that they, when they bowed down, when they created idols for themselves, when they turned away from God, it says in Deuteronomy 32 that they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to gods that came up newly, whom their fathers feared not. And then later on in Psalm 106, recounting the same sort of events, the psalmist says, they served their idols, which were a snare to them. Yes, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. 
Now, they didn't think it was demons. They thought it was gods. But that is the deception of Satan. He will mask himself in whatever way possible to make himself attractive to you, whether it's through idolatry or whether it's through false doctrine or whatever whatever it is. This has always been his playground. As a matter of fact, it's an interesting parallel, just a little footnote for your Bible. But if you were to do a study of demon possession, I don't know if you ever thought about this. I used to wonder, why, why don't I see more demon possession? It seems like I read about a lot of demon possession in the Bible. Well, you do when you come to the New Testament. And even when you read it in the New Testament, it is fairly limited to one geographical area. You can just trace it out. Go look at all the demon possessions that are spoken about in the Scripture. In the life of Christ, in the four Gospels, you won't find any that are in Jerusalem. The center of Jewish religion, the center of monotheism, the center of, of, of devout Jews who had long since uh, uh, done away with formal idolatry. Where you'll find all the demon possessions is in Galilee and even more so across the Sea of Galilee in areas that called the Decapolis, which were rank pagan. In other words, all the demon possession that you encounter as you look there or you follow the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts, what you find is that they're all geographically located in idolatrous areas. This is, this is Satan's playhouse. This is what he did. He, he presented himself by idols to people who then yielded their hearts and their minds to it and as they delve deeper and deeper and deeper into it, sacrificing eventually even their own children to these demons. Some he would take control of. This is the way it works. And it's not just that. It extends beyond religious systems. The scripture presents Satan as demons as being active behind the belief systems of secular society. Ephesians 2, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air who guides the course of this world. Or 2 Corinthians 4 He's called the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Or Satan is even presented in Scripture as filling the hearts of world leaders and political leaders. He's even personified as the one who was operating through the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. Or in another passage, Ezekiel 28, it is the prince of Pyre, Tyre, excuse me, the prince of Tyre who is the puppet of Satan to spread his influence through the world. And of course, in the end, there will be the ultimate political leader, the Antichrist, who is the vessel of Satan's deception. This is Satan's work, and it is taking place all the time. All around you. So ultimately, the manifestation may be different. Idolatry, general worldliness, false teaching within the church, but the message is the same. You need to keep your distance from it. Don't associate with it. It stirs God's jealousy. It's giving your heart and your mind to another lover. Paul says, I don't want you to do that. Sort of a guilt by association is what he's getting at. It's always important for us to consider this. Even in 2 John, verse 10, John 
warns the church. He says, look, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates. Same word, koinonia. He participates in his evil deeds. He's saying, look, even by welcoming one of these false teachers into your home. You are koinonia. You are identifying. You are endorsing what he does. That's the way it is when you come to the Lord's table. And Paul's telling them that's the way it is when you come to these pagan tables. It leaves the ultimate impression that you sanction what is taking place in the larger venue. It's a mockery of the Father. It's a sin against Christ. It shows the kind of respect for beliefs that deny the Son of God and hate His children. You become a partaker in their unbelief. And you cannot serve two masters. Paul says it this way. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's implying this is a grand spiritual inconsistency. To attend these sinful feasts and then to come and to bless the Lord shows a profound insincerity and it implies to everyone that what you say about Christ, you don't really believe in your heart. It doesn't matter if you're feasting at the table of some pagan temple or drowning your sorrows at the pub with your friends. It doesn't matter wherever you place yourself in association with the works of Satan. Paul says it is shameful and it's a mockery of God. And what you need to do is you need to realize that in everything you do, in every choice you make, in everything you set before your eyes, in every association that you establish, every relationship you enter into, you are identifying with your Savior or against Him. Either with the family of God or with the foes of God. Paul says you need to realize you might just well provoke the Lord The jealousy. And his jealousy is real. You may not have thought of God that way. But you may need to grow. In your understanding of who he is. And if you provoke his anger. You're not going to win that battle. Paul asks you. Are you stronger than him? Or as he said back in verse 12. Take heed. If you think you stand. Lest you fall. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the reminders this morning from your word. They are indeed sobering. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't recoil from the, the thought and the concept of your jealousy, but we would embrace it. To know it represents your zealous love for us. Lord, we want nothing less. And we want to give nothing less. Help us to be zealous. Help us to be single-minded. Help us to be fully devoted to your glory in all that we do. Pray these things in Christ's name.